And we are live as I try to hide a cough drop. This is uh, John Reed from uh, Diginomica with another edition of Enterprise Hits and Misses Radio. And yeah, it's a little bit of a solo flight today, though. I may have a drop-in guest or two coming. So uh, this is the only Enterprise show without a sponsor, uh, and we'll never friggin' have a sponsor. Um, we want to have Frank talk, but there'll also be drop-in guests and surprises because it's pretty unscripted. Having said that, just to kind of give you a quick update, we're going to be talking about B2B content strategy debates and the myth of hyper-personalization for a little while today. And I want to explain to you why I think that's actually a really important topic for every enterprise professional to reckon with um, instead of like some debate for a handful of so-called gurus who understand AI better than the rest of us. Anyhow, I'm going to explain that in a sec. Uh, But I do want to mention that while you're just seeing me at the moment, uh, I'm booking my show calendar. I started out this show experimenting with my uh, uh, guinea pigs, I mean uh, friends, to test out the format and make sure that this highly interactive uh, style would work. I think it does. Um, now I'm going to be branching out a little bit, bringing in some folks that I've always wanted to put in the chair, uh, some people that I really respect who are not necessarily my, my close friends. But there will still be a lot of recurring guests who are familiar favorites. Brian Summers is going to be a, a, a staple of the show, for example, so you'll hear from him frequently. But uh, but I do have some very interesting guests lined up. Brian can't provide a lot of estrogen, so uh, we're going to have some really smart uh, female guests as well. Uh, hi, LinkedIn user. How are we doing? Always good to see you. Uh, you've been uh, with us from the beginning. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I think I think you're going to really enjoy some of the – some of the guests I have lined up, I'm not going to spoil that for you now. Uh, but let's just say the next three are booked and pretty soon the next seven or eight are going to be booked. Uh, it took me a while to kind of get all that sorted. But anyhow, <clears throat> yep, Brian, he he's going to be back very frequently. So Brian and I, I think we have a good thing going in. Um, and so he'll be around quite a bit. Um, but I'm going to throw some different people at you as well because uh, it's just I think it's interesting to put some other people in the chair also. So. That will happen. Uh, anyhow, we may even get a drop in from Brian today. I actually want him to come talk about his latest blog post on modernizing ERP, uh, but we'll see. I have not heard back from Brian, so he might actually be working on an important project this afternoon. Uh, but anyhow, uh, if you're in the chat, you might as well chime in because uh, you might get tricked into coming on cam as well, depending on where where we're headed here. But I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about this issue of the great, what I call the great B2B content debate. And uh, underneath that is an imperative, which is that I believe that sales and marketing need to fundamentally change. And, uh, you know, just, just so you know, I think there's a little more pressure on that right now. I just talked to a couple of vendors who were freaking out because, oh, we haven't been able to get the leads that we used to get at the trade shows. Can't wait till trade shows come back. And so it's like, oh, we, you know, as soon as shows are back, we'll go back to our traditional scanning badges and, you know, slamming leads into our system and stuff. Well, I'm not going to say that's a failed way to approach sales, but it's it's diminishing returns and it's 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 a part of your overall framework. But folks who idealize that approach uh, are going to run into a lot of trouble. Um, but I do these uh, B2B uh, content strategy uh, sessions at every single level because uh, it's highly important to individuals as well because. Uh, for example, whether you're a solopreneur or in, in your own career, uh, if if you don't understand the the, import, the methodology behind content and community, then no matter how good your skills are, you're going to find yourself shortchanged from a career perspective. 
Um, so that's that's point one. Um, point two is that small businesses are very impacted by this. Uh, I run a, a Facebook group for my town that's pretty large, and small businesses are constantly posting ads and cheesy giveaways and gimmicks, which are all against the rules. Follow us, and you know the, the next uh, thousand likes, we'll pick, we'll draw one out of a hat and give you like a, uh, a you know, a, a thermal blanket or something. And it's like, well, um, that's not the best way to really position your business in your industry. And, you know, only a small percentage of small businesses have figured that out and have created compelling content that will actually allow them to get their posts approved and make a difference in their community. Uh, fundamentally, this is about becoming part of your community in a way that resonates from your from your expertise rather than marketing the hell out of that community. So the bottom line is my view on sales and marketing is that sales salespeople must become experts and advisors and marketers need to become journalists and, and educators. And uh, you can probably imagine what the cultural resistance that is. And in the large enterprise space, this is an issue as well. But the interesting dilemma there is that large enterprises have large enterprise budgets. And so they're being pitched with AI and hyper-personalization essentially as a way to get around this problem and uh, and avoid the the culture change, in my view, in, in favor of of throwing throwing money in tech at the problem of 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 attention right so because it's really about fundamentally it's about attention and it's about reaching people at the right moment um and one of the big things that gets lost here is the distinction between b to c and b to b purchases um although i guess you could argue the real distinction is between complex purchases versus impulse purchases right but there's very few impulse purchases in b to b um in b to c there's a ton of them and so influencing a consumer uh in in an impulse purchase scenario I think AI can actually probably do that a little bit. It's a little bit diabolical. Uh, I, I don't think it's really necessarily appropriate or right to, to do it that way. Uh, but uh, but anyhow, um, it, it, it can be done. But in B2B, that doesn't always translate. And one of my big themes around this is that there's an underside to hyper-personalization, which is the way in which you alienate certain core members of your audience Perhaps it doesn't matter a whole lot in the consumer side of things, but in the B to B side of things, it can matter a great deal, right? Like if 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 your spam bot approach to marketing uh, alienates a key decision maker uh, that you're uh, in, in your next project, well, that's not such a great thing. Um, so for reference on Diginomica, if you want to dig into this a little bit, there's a couple pieces. Um, if you look up the myth of hyper personalization under my name, um, algorithms are still undermining the customer experience. You can kind of see my my fundamental take on this. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking this view of hyper-personalization. I'm clashing it against a different approach that I think is much more powerful and effective. Um, so I'm going to just briefly walk you through a little bit of, of that. But one, one of the core uh, issues here that I think is really, really important is that what I find most marketers are obsessed with is more, I think they think that they appreciate content marketing, the power of content to engage, but I think they think that their content generally is good enough. And I could not disagree more. Um, most enterprise content is just not what you would call differentiating. It's just not good enough. Um, now there are some exceptions to that. For example, like, like obviously you want to have a bunch of FAQ, FAQ content around your products and stuff. It's not incredibly hard to do helpful FAQ type content. And it doesn't have to be the, you know, uh, uh, Moby Dick. Uh, to, it just has to be effective within that context. But when you talk about trying to earn trust, earn earn buyer trust, and 
and basically win over people who are not drinking your Kool-Aid yet. Well, your content has to be a lot more differentiated, a lot more powerful than what it is. And, uh, and, oh, I have some people chiming in on Twitter about something totally different, which is, I just posted a link to a new AI translation engine, uh, that supposedly is the best AI translator ever created. So have a look at twitter.com, Johnny ERP. If you want to see, uh, people chiming in on that. Um, but anyhow, back, back to this point now around, around content. So I think that's, that's essentially the crux of the matter for me is that, uh, differentiated content is really hard work and, and culture change is, is necessary because in most enterprise organizations, how many people are really committed to creating differentiated content as part of their jobs? And even if they are, how many enterprises will take their muzzles off their employees enough to, uh, to create that content on, on social media? Um, part of the pitch that I give smaller businesses and individuals is just quit getting on social media without a point of view or without having really crafted uh, content that, that resonates with, with your expertise, like start there and, and, and then you have something to share and engage with. I think so many people are just empty vessels on social. Uh, I call it peacock feathers, but preening for no reason. Whereas if you have the spaces of content uh, then you can really start making a difference in people's lives. And that's how you earn, earn trust. And I think, you know, trust is just a really, really underrated aspect of, of what, uh, B2B buyers care about. Um, so essentially you have a juxtaposition then of two radically different, uh, points of view. Um, now that doesn't mean that I don't think AI can be incredibly useful in terms of various aspects of sales and marketing, nor am I throwing out all the traditional things that sales people and marketers do. I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but, uh, in, in general, um, when you're, when you're thinking about this, like, yeah, like, so I just talked to a client the other day is like looking at traffic generated by our content and looking at how individuals wind up integrated into their CRM system. And then they're assigned, of course, a score. And based on the different types of score, there might be different kinds of automated triggers or uh, a salesperson might follow up with someone if they reach a certain threshold. And that score might be dictated by things like engagement with content, amount of times on the site, sign up for various things. And that's all... I think that's all effective. And so I'm not necessarily saying that, that AI cannot be incorporated into this, but I just am very, very wary of, of what I perceive as sort of a throwing tech expensive, a very expensive technology at this problem of, of hyper-personalization. And a lot of it has to do with an obsession with context. And um, if you, if you guys have been following Thomas uh, Weburn at all, who's appeared on this program, he's doing a really good job of, of outlining sort of the problem of the th- obsessing over the 360 degree view of the customer and such in his ahead CRM blog. Um, so check out his CRM combos on LinkedIn for more on this. But one of, one of the points that we've been talking about there is, so what I describe is the need to build opt-in audience around what you're doing. So instead of just thinking about people as prospects in kind of a narrow way, think in B2B, think about all the people who influence buying decisions who might never buy from you, whether it's a subject matter expert or an independent advisor or uh, a journalist or, or even like an executive that moves from one organization to another, you still want them to be part of your, part of your community, part of your world. And if you're relevant to the problems they're trying to solve in their lives, then, then you can do that. Um, and the notion of opt-in communities is the notion that people start opting into what you're doing and sharing data with you. And, and if you have that, then why do you need to obsess over 
why you need to reach someone in a particular moment because moment to moment, I think, uh, you know, our attention spans are very fleeting now. Right. So in one moment I might be in a shopping cart in the next moment I might be getting a text from my mother about her, her COVID test. And suddenly I'm shifting gears. Why do I need AI to predict my context every single moment? Um, in, in many cases, when it comes to e-commerce, it's always wrong anyway, because they're, they're deferring on past behavior, but yeah, I just bought an exercise bike. I don't really need to see another one in my feed. Um, so, so this attempt to predict and this notion that AI as it currently exists is intelligent enough to predict context is basically bullshit in my opinion. And so what I've been trying to do is to create a, a viable alternative. So instead of calling BS on, on, on AI per se, I'm trying to come up with a different way of looking at that same problem. And I talk about it in terms of opt-in audiences as, as a way of thinking about a different framework. Um, and so I think there's a lot, lot to be fleshed out there. Um, that opt-in audiences, by the way, I do want to give credit to Robert Rose of the content marketing Institute because he kind of, perf- per, uh, rolled out that phrase in the B2C, uh, content marketing world. And I sort of stole it. So, uh, <laughs> I, if I had to take a paternity test on that phrase, I, I would not get it. So, uh, so, so thanks to Robert Rose for some stuff. If you look up John Reed and Robert Rose on Diginomica, you can look up our original debate that I have with him. Um, if you want to look a little bit more on B2B selling in 2021, um, then just do a search on that piece. Uh, Give me industry expertise over the flawed pursuit of hyper personalization by John Reed. Uh, and you can check that out. Um, but let me just walk you through just a few things in that piece. And, uh, and just a reminder, um, post comments and questions in the chat. Um, and, uh, and I may actually uh, switch gears in a little bit if I have a drop-in guest come in. So we'll see. Uh, but I wanted to get this down. I'm going to be doing a workshop on this, I think, locally pretty soon at a virtual event. So uh, you know, I kind of needed to do a bit of a dry run of some of these ideas. So um, here's a comment, LinkedIn user. How do you differentiate between corporate ambitions, people motivated through performance of an organization to individuals who've been keen at organization on a lower level of staff engagement? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit tricky too, right? Like to what extent um, do you expect people to kind of tie into a corporate brand and corporate mission versus to what extent do you allow them to go off the reservation and position themselves as experts in their own right and stuff like that? Um, I think what increasingly folks are realizing is that um, kind of massive retweeting and and reposting of corporate brand views is sort of an empty thing to do. And what's much more powerful is having uh, your own employees uh, like go out there and establish their own particular expertise, but within the context, hopefully, of your overall sort of corporate mission and identity as well, so that there's not necessarily a conflict between the two. Um, now, granted, some employers don't want to do that, and they have this knee-jerk thing that if if you become too successful, then you're going to become a sought-after commodity, and you, and you'll leave them. And look, to some extent, that's true. But I think the smart companies realize that that um, that even if someone leaves for being sought after, it's still a draw to other people. Um, let me speak to that uh, from this piece on B two B selling that I wrote a couple weeks ago. Uh, I said, uh, though I don't believe in the magic of hyper-personalization, I do believe in the magic of exceptional content. Content scales in a way relationships don't. 
Some of the best business relationships you'll ever form stem from content. And today I spoke to a supply chain vendor about getting their experts to buy into this model, which I think pertains to the question we just got in the chat. They're looking at a number of options, including podcast production. And so we talked about how the hardest part of that is culture change. So what are the components that are needed to get back to this question? One is executives need to embrace the cross-organizational imperative of devoting time content, encouraging experts and product leads to create it. Could it become part of their KPIs? It warrants discussion. Uh, So uh, leadership needs to take social media muzzles off their experts. Otherwise, there is no authentic community to be built. Um, and, And that's a really important point around this because I sometimes use this phrase often audiences. Other times I use the phrase often communities. And I think what we need to acknowledge is that perhaps there's a an evolution there where the community is the highest ground of all. Um, and, you know, opt-in audiences, an audience implies perhaps a slightly more passive relationship. A community member is an even more active relationship, and they might even be generating some of their own content as well. And one of the very interesting things that 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 comes up around all of this is is that you know, communities in enterprise settings always get a kind of a, they're sort of like the, 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 the step children of, of investment in a sense. It's kind of like investing in community is kind of like investing in training. Like it's one of the last things you do. And if you, if you look at community moderators and community leaders in organizations, a lot of times they're underpaid, undervalued, and they're doing really, really important work managing communities. Because if you don't manage communities in a smart way, you end up, you know, kind of silencing the dissenting voices and suddenly your community is a wet noodle of like corporate views and it empties out. (laughs) And I could tell you about some vendors that have experienced that the hard way. Um, But one of my foils around all this stuff is uh, Matthew Sweezy from Salesforce. He was a Diginomica partner, by the way, but I got to know him before I even knew he worked for Salesforce. But he wrote a book called The Context Marketing Revolution. Um, He also wrote a podcast series called the uh, Electronic Propaganda Society that I recommend you listen to. It's fantastic listening. But um, he dropped some eye-watering stats around Salesforce's Trailhead community. Customers who complete the onboarding program and join the Trailblazer community, including Trailhead, buy, on average, twice as many Salesforce products and remain customers four times as long, producing significant overall increases in user adoption and lifetime customer value. If that's not a case to be made around this other approach of building opt-in communities, I don't know what is. Um, And look, I'm not telling you not to, not to spend any money on, on AI, but I just think this sort of this hyper hyper personalization pursuit is sort of an excuse for not making the culture change that's necessary to make. Um, so when you look at subject matter experts, they must also embrace that role if this is going to happen. And yeah, it's tough when you have project deadlines bearing down on you. And look, there are going to be times where customer go-lives take precedence over everything. But when vendors uh, tell me that their experts can't write because they are, quote, busy with customers, that raises flags. Um, good content engages more prospects and customers. A good FAQ, for example, can save an expert from countless repeated conversations while expanding the, the reach of that advisory. So basically what I'm telling you is that an opt-in audience solves a lot of algorithmic guesswork. Um, and hey, it can even actually um, feed uh, your, your AI systems with more data from, uh, from users who have voluntarily shared their data with you because they think you have integrity. Um, Bonnie says, what are the hottest communities forming? Says 
Bonnie, LinkedIn, Twitter. What about the new thing, Clubhouse? Oh, uh, yeah. We're getting a we're club Clubhouse. Yes. Um, Derek Dupreeze wrote on, uh, my colleague uh, wrote on uh, Clubhouse on Diginomica. And Den and I, Den Howland and I got into it in the comments uh, for that. So you can check that out. He and I had a little bit of a fist of cuffs around it. Uh, the gist of it is he was taking the piss on Clubhouse. And I was trying to make a little bit of a different point. I think I, we weren't really disagreeing. He was just saying there's no business model behind it. And uh, frankly, I don't really care if Clubhouse succeeds or fails uh, anyway. Um, that wasn't really what I was interested in. What I was interested in, if, if you guys aren't familiar with Clubhouse, it's kind of it's sort of sparking around Silicon Valley now as far as Elon Musk, I think, wrote about it recently or tweeted. But uh, it's still in a beta, so you can't get in there unless you get invited. Um, it's iPhone only right now or iOS only. You can do it on a tablet too, I think. Um, but basically, it's uh, informal audio-only discussions. Um, and one of the things that I think is is fascinating about it is because I made this point in the comments, but by being unapologetically audio, it is different. Um, because someone pointed out that like there's Discord, which is already available for Android. But the thing about Discord is it's also video. And when you have video and audio together, essentially what you're going to end up doing is you're going to discriminate against audio people by default because video people are going to have center stage. I mean, look at how it works on zoom when audio people call in, like it's not the same as the video people, as far as the presence that they have in the conversation. So by being resolutely audio only, it's quite interesting because what you're doing is you're freeing people up to think of it as something they can do while they're puttering around, which I think totally changes the vibe. Um, and it's more of an informal hangout as in a clubhouse, right? Where you don't always have to be paying attention. You can chill and get distracted, then come back to the conversation. But one of the points that Bonnie's raising here, which I think is vitally important, is that you know she asked about the hottest communities, LinkedIn, Twitter, or New Thing Clubhouse. The problem is that communities are 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 um, spread out now, right? So when I talk about opting community, that's really more of like what your database ends up as. But the cultivating the community might get you spread out in all kinds of places because people you, you kind of have to strike a balance because I do think you need some stuff on your own website, but at the same time you have to go where you're your practitioners are and you won't be able to go everywhere. So you're going to have to make some choices around that. And, and yeah, I mean, I think clubhouse for some could be part of it. It's early days. Um, LinkedIn user says, if I get a clubhouse invite, I'll share it with you all. And we should experiment these kinds of podcasts in there. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think, I, I think if I did clubhouse, it wouldn't be a replacement for this because this is, this has a different level of visibility. And I think, I think there is something to be said for video in terms of just the immediacy of it. But I, th I would see it as a supplement to this where if you had certain kinds of video conversations like that, you could also have like a, a reaction session or just a different session sparked by it where you could just have much more peer group oriented, just discussions. Um, one, one downside I can tell you with clubhouse right now is that there's no um, like releasing of the recordings you can't access there's no recordings now in theory you could maybe record it on your side but the point is i would be a little bit less attracted i think to something where i couldn't re-release -re the audio later because i do think that um post-event consumption is a pretty pretty crucial thing at least in my world it is for b2b but um anyhow i still think it warrants some um, experiment um and yeah we need to do a clubhouse for experimental purposes that that's kind of what what i was what I was saying is I'm interested in trying it at some point. Um, but um, I'm a droid.
I'm an Android guy. I can't stand iPhones. So uh, I'm not going to be anywhere near there until there's an Android version. So my appearance on Clubhouse is going to be delayed at this time. So, um, yeah, I, I might be switching gears in just a few minutes. Uh, I may have a guest coming or I may have someone else popping in on, on cam. So we shall, we shall see. Um, but I did want to take the opportunity to, to share this with you guys, because I think that, that whether you're an individual, small organization or an enterprise, there's an opportunity to differentiate around content. And, and obviously if you're a smaller company, the option to do AI is out of the question in, in that broader, more expensive, elaborate sense of hyper-personalization. But I think you could still elegantly integrate these ideas into a lead generation model as well. It's not, I'm not for a minute going to say that lead generation needs to be thrown out. I just, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to be hyperbolic about it because I'm just getting sick of dealing with um, marketing, PR, and salespeople who th- who are trying to cling to old models, which uh, once Brian Summer and I referred to that as golf course relationships. Like this used to be uh, an industry where you wind and dine people. Uh, that was the big deal. And and look, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that you're never going to take someone to a football game ever again. Uh, back in the early days of uh, big shows like Sapphire Now. Um, there were some establishments that were visited in Orlando to close deals that were not what I would call particularly reputable. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, and I just think that model is going out the door. And I think it was a corrupt model to begin with because it wasn't about truly establishing value. And I think for, for salespeople, the challenge is on, which is, you know, it's much more of a challenger sale model. Now it's an ROI selling model because a lot of companies that you sell into they'll tell you they don't have budget for your product. So it becomes your job to demonstrate what that value is um, and show them that they can actually, that they need to do it because it will actually free up their budget in the short term. But you can only do that through a value generation exercise during the sales process. And you can't rely always on some other expert to do that while you come in and schmooze with the big personality. Uh, You know, and big personality is a lot harder too when you can't even get someone on the friggin' phone. Um, so, you know, how do you do that? Well, if you're a trusted advisor, that's a whole different story. I mean, I know, I know a lot of, uh, customers and vendors, they won't make a move without calling a certain advisor or analyst that they trust. They won't make a big move without consulting them. Um, so this is really more of a reflection of that is that you want to be part of that inner circle. Oh, Hey, looks like we got, we got Brian here. How we doing? Yeah. Uh, wait, the, those whining and dining days are over. Thank goodness. Yeah, man. I, I always thought it was so corrupt. Of course, let me be, let me be totally honest. Some of that was sour grapes on my part because I couldn't afford to take people to, you know, fancy, uh, you know, a weekend in uh, Maui kind of thing, like to close their business. So I was always up against it with that model. Anyhow, I wasn't, I'm a terrible schmoozer anyway for stuff like that. I, I suck at that. So I was at a disadvantage anyway. So frankly, I am enjoying the fact that, that that that's going out of style. But I always thought it was just BS. It's like, who can show the company the best time gets the deal? And and you're talking about a multi-year implementation project. And now you wonder why so many of those projects either failed or didn't live up to what they were doing. Um, geez. Uh, hey, hey, Brian, if you're listening... Um, just uh, grab the link from uh, from Twitter. I already sent it to you. Um, just go your Twitter direct messages, 
and just click on that. And once you're on the back end, I'll bring you in. And uh, we're actually going to talk with Brian about modernizing ERP, which fits into a little bit of this discussion, but from a different angle, based on a provocative post that Brian wrote on Diginomica that a lot of readers didn't, I don't think, fully understand. Um, so I really want to get into that with him. Um, so, Brian, let me know if you have any trouble uh, finding that link. Um, so, yeah, those whining and dining days. The hell with those days, man. I, I sucked at that. I totally sucked at that. Ah, uh, we got Brian. All right, here we go. Turning champ. Turning champion, Brian Summer. Back for more. How we doing? I'm okay. Um, so, uh, I'm here. I actually had some dental work yesterday. I'm not too happy about it, but uh, I'm actually speaking and I'm not all beat up from it, so I feel pretty good. Brian, your audio is a little faint to me. Audience members, are you having any trouble hearing Brian? Let me know. Um, let me jump on the settings and see if I can adjust that. Live without a net on the video show. Testing one, two, three. And one more thing I'm going to check. Let's see. Asking anyone who's watching, can you just let us know how well you can hear myself and Brian? Just so we do a quick sound check. What I hear in my ears isn't always accurate, so. I think I've done about all I can do on it on this end, John. Oh yeah. Okay. Let me just see if I can do anything on you on this end. You're it's, it's getting better. Let me just check on Mike settings here. Oh, let me do some other things to knock out all these other apps that are probably chewing up bandwidth. So hold on. <laughs> Ryan, I just jacked your microphone volume up too. Let's see. Test it again. All right. Can you hear me now? I might have no. distorted you. Let me turn it down a bit. Try again. Well, let's hope it's better now. We'll have to just go with this. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, we're better now. Okay, good. Thanks, Brian. So, sorry, you were saying about your day yesterday. You had a little bit of a doozy of a day? Uh, yeah, uh, had a little dental work done. I'm not going to, you know, disturb your listeners and run them off by going uh. through that. So I'll spare that. Well, I hope that this is this beats the dental chair. The John John Reed Enterprise chair should be more comfy. Yeah, the good so, the, the good part of this is I can always just get up and leave here. It's a little bit different. It, it, a little different issue when you're in the dental, dentist chair. Anyway, so what did I miss so far? Sorry for being oh, late. Oh, well, I was just ta- no, it's all good. I I was I was going through a bit of a rant and a methodology around B2B content strategy in my debate with with hyper-personalization, but the part that um, ties in with you is I was talking about how sales need to change and how many years ago in Diginomica, you and I wrote about the golf course relationship hmm. uh, going, you know, thankfully going out of style, this whole idea that you, that the way you win B2B businesses by whining and dining people versus demonstrating the value you can bring is like finally fading. Thank God it's still there, but at least it's not as dominant as it was. Okay. Well then, I just finished a briefing call with a vendor, and what were they doing to me? They were giving me the buzzword firehose treatment, you know, and all I was getting was 
one buzzword after another, after another, like I'm sitting here with a friggin' checklist, uh, you know, to make sure that they cover them all. And at the end of the call, I just gave them some counsel and said, look, guys, people don't want to buy buzzwords. They want to buy a new end state for their company. Tell them where you're going to take them. Tell them what that journey looks like and show and prove to them that you can bring some value along the way. And if you can't do that, then they're not going to listen to you anyway. Uh, you know, so uh, maybe maybe for the vendors that, you know, have unlimited expense accounts and obscene gross margins, uh, they can afford to wine and dine, you know, people. But um, I, I think the market's moved. Uh, you know, there was a whole book uh, called The Challenger Sale. It was, I'm looking at yep. right now. It's I just by, talked uh, about that. I'm a big advocate of, of those approaches. Continue. Yeah. And, you know, that's me all the way around. I, you know, somebody calls. Okay. It was, uh, <laughs> nice job. Okay. That was sorry my buzzword. That. Yeah. Challenger oh. sale. You already guessed my buzzword. Well done. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll be watching the mailbox for my prize. Um, but, you know, the, the whole deal was uh, I learned a long, long time ago that my golf game is terrible. So if I'm going to have to uh, sell a big consulting job like back in my Accenture days, I either had to do it based on the level of my personal relationships with folks and my golf game to go with it, or I needed to be a um, uh, a subject matter expert that could justify the highest possible billing rate you could get because of what I know. Well, I choose that one. Uh, I chose that all day long. And again, I'm left-handed, so I don't bowl right. I don't I don't golf the correct way, so I'm, um, I made the right choice for me. Yeah, like like I, like you and me, we weren't well cut out for that world. Anyhow, I was saying I couldn't afford to take people to Maui, so I I, I was always highly resentful of that business business model. Anyhow, um, but I think one of the one of the importance of the challenger sale type methodology now, Brian, is that you can wine and dine people all you want, but it, you're not in their budget, so you know they they can't afford you. And so you have to your your job now is to go in and show how you can take the money from their existing budget and transform their circumstance in some way, either by automating or saving money or or building out some new revenue stream. So the golf course is irrelevant to that, you know. It's yeah, and, but the other hand, on the other hand, too, depending on where you're at in the state of the lockdown, you're not going to be taking these people out anyway. Uh, they're not true that. Out. Yeah, they're, I guess we have to. Office. Yeah true that we you know probably probably that but but part of what i was saying brian is that a lot of people just can't wait until that model comes back right so i was having a conversation yesterday about like oh we can't wait till we get our trade show back and we get all those hot leads again you know it's like bad scanning frenzy and i was trying to tell them i was like well first of all it's not come back right away but second of all like you know you need to start changing your model it's not like you're never going to do that again but like relying on that no you know, not when there's so much opportunity to carve out your own topic authority and so much opportunity to to earn the trust of buyers by solving their problems. And and one thing I talk about in in the piece that I wrote on why selling and marketing has to change, I talk about a couple of examples of companies that that go in as part of a sales process and show you something about your internal systems you didn't know. And regardless of whether you do business with them or not, you leave them with a snapshot that shows them how they how they can improve. Like, and to me, like, that's the essence of the challenger sale model is I can go in and show you something you don't even know 
And even if you don't do business with me, I've generated goodwill out of that. You know, uh, I'll take it a step further. I used to show up all the time at uh, prospective clients, and all I knew walking in the door was they wanted to talk about X, and X could be something like, say, shared services. And I'd go, okay, let's see how much I can guess about your situation. And I would throw up this like PowerPoint slide or whatever, and it would be the top 10 screw-ups most people make on shared service. And I'd go right down the list. And everybody in the room is just like, oh, my God, he's talking about us. You know, I mean, it's like I, I can't tell you how many times people would pull me aside going, you had to have have had a mole over here to know all those things about us. I'm going, no, I've seen this problem. You know, this movie is one I've seen again and again and again. And you know what? The beauty about that kind of an approach in a sales call, if you will, is immediately the prospect now knows that you have way more knowledge about that kind of problem than they do. That's number one. And number two is where your competitors are doing this blah, blah, blah about, you know, how big we are and how big our global network is and blah, 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 you know. Well, guess what? Nobody cares about that. What they care about is can you fix our problem? I don't need, like, it's like if you are went to a doctor, I don't really care as much about where they went to, to med school or or who their last, how many patients they had last year. What I care about is, do you know what's wrong with me? And do you know how to fix it? That's what I care about. Have you seen this problem before? You know, and I think a lot of people get lost on the value problem. If you've got a moment, John, and we can do the, the screen share. And I know you and I tried this once before. It was a little bit problematic. I might send you something called the Undeck. You know how that Seven Up was the Uncola? I have ah. something that's called the Undeck. It the is Undeck. the worst. It's the worst enterprise software sales deck you've ever seen. Oh, and dude! Try um want- try uploading that to LinkedIn, and I'll see if I can upload it from my. I mean, not LinkedIn. Um, Twitter. Try to upload it there, and okay. uh, and I will then download it and see if I can pop it into our. Because I, I need to see that the worst sales deck. That would be pretty awesome. We'll see if we can get it out to our viewers. I think we should be able to. We tried this once before with with mixed results, but I think. Oh, and and by the way, you probably saw that that Greg is wants to join your PR team. He says you're innovating at scale while actualizing value with broad value appeal. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice job, man. Man, I'm feeling my paradigm shifting all over again. Um, Let's yeah, see. you know, it's funny when a when a vendor describes themselves as a paradigm shifter, that's always a good sign that your virtual event's gonna be a real dud. Um that just happened to me recently, actually. But uh yeah, so um just c- kind of continuing on while Brian like attempts to get this slide deck going. Um so when I get into this thing on why sales need to change, I talk about this challenger sale model and how to sell, sell systems in a pandemic economy. Uh, suddenly, a budget with no room for your product makes room, um, you know, because you provided a meaningful look at how you can change the prospect's business, ideally with a demo that's actually built on their data. Um, and so my thing is that I think a lot of salespeople in the B2B realm aren't equipped with the ability to do that, nor do they, do they know how to do that. Um, and, you know, that's the concept of like, well, 
I don't want to walk away from people after I show them something of value. But in the opt-in community model, that's great because they're still a part of your community and they still are going to refer other prospects to you. And so it's not so much, oh, I won that deal. I lost that deal. It's more a matter of I continue to generate an opt-in community around my product and those people be back. You know, that's the whole point is they're, they're now saying, hey, I respect you. You help me with my business. I might not buy from you right now. I might buy for you later. You know, and to me, the whole like whining and dining thing, sending someone tickets to the game or whatever, the ver- pandemic equivalent of that Amazon gift card, I guess, that's for people who are already signed on contracts. If you want to like say, hey, thanks for being a customer, but that's not going to win them over or get them to renew. That's more just a nice thing to say, hey, you, you helped us out. We're glad to have you as a customer. That's, that's more of a nice to have now. Thank God it's not the essence of the deal anymore. I'd be screwed. Wow, Greg, man. If you ever want to stop implementing and working on important projects, you could probably do this for a living. A market leader in the engagement of knowledge acceleration to deliver a platform of productive disruption. Yeah, because the great thing about disruption is, you know, it never affects production. I mean, that's the beauty of it. There's no contradiction there at all. There's no tension. All right. Brian, did you send me that yet? Are you still working on it? Uh, well, it turns out I have like five of these undecks. You know, there's no shortage. Oh, okay. really, there's no shortage of really bad ones out there. Uh, so hold on. I'll, I'll, I'm just going to pick one and send it to you. Um, uh, the one, I'm looking for, there's one I have on resellers that's a hoot and a half. So uh, I, I, it blinked by me a moment ago, and I'm going to find it here just any second. Uh, yeah, <laughs> got her. Okay, I have found the deck. Um, you want it in Twitter? Is that where you want? Yeah, it? just send a Twitter direct message. So uh, I, I use this anecdote around hyper-personalization, at, you know, because I juxtapose this fetish with hyper-personalization against what we're talking about here. And uh, so here's this anecdote. This fall, I heard from a PR firm pitching AI-powered hyper-personalization for hotel chains. They claim we could avoid searching for our loyalty numbers at hotel check-ins. Instead, I was told, AI and ML can help brands solve these challenges by automating hyper-personalized offers. I responded, I'm a member of many loyalty programs. Some are better than others, but none of them have succeeded in the type of hyper-personalization you're describing here. Uh, One reason I'm very cynical about this is, even if they have the right data, they think, I don't care if John has never stayed here recreationally before, send him the recreational offer anyhow, because 10 people... 10% 10% of people like him bite it. I don't care if it bothers him or not. And so my point was until businesses are willing to change that, we can't really talk about hyper-personalization because it's just too easy to spray and pray. And in B2B, the whole point is that spray and pray is a, is something with a significant downside. In consumers, you can accept collateral damage from a campaign. I'm not so sure you can in B2B, right? Because what if the person they, they tick off is you, you know? Or what if they tick off Greg Robinette, you know? Greg's not going to greenlight their project if he hates their spam bot and can't, and can't get information about their services. 
yes, Greg, we can execute this optimal level. I'm not sure if we're at the optimal level right now. I think we're a little bit of a work in progress. Um, okay, so let me just see if I got your deck yet, Brian. It's not going through on uh, Twitter, but I did send it to you on your email. So. Oh, it's on my email. Okay. Yeah, sorry about um, that. No, anyway. it's all right. Um, so let me think about how I'm going to do this. Uh, so just just prattle on for a sec while I while I figure out how we're going to solve this problem. Okay. All right. Well, folks, I um, I will say this: this deck that's coming up is uh, uh oh. I didn't realize I moved John completely out of the view now. All right. Um. All right. Well, while John's gone, I will tell you, there were a couple of things that did uh, surprise me uh, this week. Uh, One had to do with, you know, not even IT analysts, we can agree on everything. And there, sir, were some differences of opinion on uh, the Salona, Synovia, SAP kind of stuff this week. And if you're a little confused on it, well, join the crowd because I, I guarantee there's not unanimity within the analyst world on that space. I was also surprised there's an IT service management firm called uh, Sharewell, as in like Sunny and Share. And uh, they are interesting to me, nice people, really nice out of Colorado. And I know they've had, uh, they were owned by KKR, I believe, and they recently got acquired uh, very quietly a few couple of weeks ago by a company called Avante. And uh, that's headed up by Jim Shaper, who uh, many of the analysts and others would know as uh, the head guy that used to run Infor many years ago. And that's one I'd like to dig into a little bit more and find out more what's going on there. Um, John's back. I don't know if he's ready hey, yet. But. Not quite ready. Keep keep prattling on for a sec. All right. So anyway, I just thought those were some of the kind of more interesting stories over there. I also found out I got hacked. Um, a database uh, had gotten hacked uh, from a data aggregator, and they exposed my um, name, address, uh, several phone numbers, email addresses, that kind of stuff. And the more I dug into it, I found out that uh, that information was put into this database by a car dealer. I'd bought a car from four years ago, four or five years ago, and uh, I never knew about it. I never consented to that. They put it out there, so I contacted the company, and I and I knew I'd get a response because I asked them, and who's your legal representation on this matter? And I immediately got an answer within 48 hours that, well, we're not going to do anything for anybody because they, no one could use that information to open, you know, a credit line. But they did expose a lot, and I beat them up pretty good for it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. There you go. Can, yeah. So can we can we see it? Yeah. Can you put it on the display mode instead of the edit mode it's in right now? Oh yeah, I'm always terrible at that. Let me think. How would I do that? Is that it's under- in the? It's on the. It should be down at the bottom right. Uh, there's a deal that gives you full screen uh, or a presentation mode, but way down at the bottom right, right next to the scale, the hundred percent down there. Uh, crap! I don't see it. We'll get down on the control line, way down at the bottom. bottom oh wait! Yep. There's a full screen. It's to the left of that 100% or something. It's to the left of the 100%. There you go. Click that. Slideshow? Yeah, slideshow. That's it. Is that, can we see it now? 
Mm, it's not doing slideshow, but okay. Oh, it did on me. All right, let's try something else. All right, well, just tab down. Let's go down to another. Go down to another slide. So this, okay. Whoa, that's the that's all of them. We don't want that view. Um, <laughs> we'll get there. All right, we're gonna have to look right, at just, this view. Just tab down, tab down. Okay. Go down two pages. So this is this is what a channel reseller has. You know, here's their new software from. <laughs> I'm stuck Ego on the. Made. I'm stuck on the narcissism slide for a sec here, Brian. That. <laughs> Well, but that's the way that's the way most software companies and software resellers sell. They do nothing. They don't listen to the client and the client's problems. They talk about themselves, you know. So that's why I thought how appropriate we'll create their their company will sell narcissism. It's almost like a Coco Chanel uh, fragrance. So the first thing these clowns do is they talk about themselves. They tell you how long they've been in business and, you know, how many people they have and, you know, how different, you know, how many different. How many different industries. We have served 27 industries. Well, the next vendor will sell 28 and who cares? And then they'll tell you about the awards that they won. You know, I love these awards. The function feature demo pentathlon. uh, The most lopsided deal. Yeah, the most that. lopsided deal. I love that one. That's a good one to win. Um, and what's the third one there? The oh, uh, the best story told to a prospect. Okay, so think about those. You know, and you know, like any prospect, really wants to hear that kind of uh, crud. Keep going. Um, here's some more awards. What are these? Uh, yeah, oh, that's more, more, the, yeah, more of the same. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, and then they go, oh. oh, and by the way, did we tell you who we are? They they keep telling you that, you know, all about themselves and never about, never once think to ask the prospect, what is it you really need? Uh, oh, now we're going to we have go. our most overused cliches. Oh, yeah. You know, like in the uh, fast food industry, everybody talks about three things, cleanliness, quality, and low cost. And in the software industry, we're the same overused kind of expressions from one vendor to the next, and none of it means anything to a prospect. Oh, come on, man. TCO. Who cares about low-cost TCO when, you know, I don't know. I I can't believe it. I'll tell you why. There was a very major vendor this week had some big announcements and they talked about how their new thing that they're doing is going to reduce overall TCO. Now, that sounds good on the surface, but what they're really saying is now the new version of our product, you have to buy more software from us, use more of our cloud services, and you have to um, decommission your on-prem stuff. And that's how we get the TCO down. We aren't going to lose a nickel in revenue, but no. you've got to take cost away from some other area. That's how they get a lower TCO. Oh, spare me. Oh, and by the way, did we tell you who we are? Uh, you know, and <laughs> I, I, think, I think I'm detecting a pattern here for this slide. Usually we have these duplicate slide issues, but I think there's a reason. No, they're the in there every time. Because oh my God, that's hilarious. When you, when you sit through these really bad demos, and I welcome all the listeners to just pile in like, you ever had to go through one of these egotistical, let me tell you how great I am or my vendor is or my product is, and you just get that to death. Instead of actually taking the time, like you were talking about, about challenger sale, to find out about the prospect and their problems. Keep going. The next one. Our tech stack, yeah, we don't understand it, but we know you'll pay dearly for it. And we, you know, we work on complex problems and we and we celebrate with our clients' money afterwards. So, you know, that's another thing. 
every one of these decks somewhere in by about the sixth slide has that bunch of little rectangulars, uh, looks like bricks that show our techn technology platform or our cloud platform or our application stack platform. Everybody's got one like it matters. Uh, you know, I mean, they're all pretty much variations on a theme. That's not differentiating, folks. I hate to break it to you. Greg, I am lifted higher. <laughs> um, Thomas wants to like throw a wrench in your discussion, Brian. Isn't that at least some introduction is necessary? Outside of people knowing your names and what company you're from, they don't care. Like there's a software vendor I know. Everybody in the company has four line item deep job uh, title on their business card. I mean, who needs to know that you're the executive associate vice president of the mid-Atlantic region of the vending machine sub-vertical, you know, second in command? I don't care. All I want to know is, can you solve my business problem? You know, so. So, you Brian, know. how do you feel about the logo slide? Okay, we're coming to we that. Got, we, got we're, 50, we're, we got 50 logos onto the slide for you, man. We're coming to that. Go ahead. Tab right to okay, it. You're, right. you're good. Uh, so here we go. Our incredible <laughs> client list, you know, um, actually I have one with a million uh, deals on uh, customer logo things on there. And it just says, we would love if all these were our customers. There's all these logos, you know, maybe we can put yours on here someday. Um, anyway. Yeah. Maybe they're just camera shy. I like that. All right. Keep going in all weather. Okay. Uh, next slide. What Thomas says here, being a consultant, the customers do care about the creds of the consultancy. Uh, yes, but but they also care more, I think, about the credentials of the individual consultants that are actually going to do the work uh, instead of somebody who uh, shows up to win it but never comes back again. But uh, well, and the, other thing, the other thing I would argue there, Thomas, is that I think that might play a role as far as like, you're not gonna you're not gonna even get onto a meaningful sales call with a prospect if they don't like do a little homework on you or or you send them some background information of some kind. But my my bias once I'm on a call with someone is not to tell them about how how great I am and what what a for, forward thinking guru I am, but but to get in the fray with them and talk about their problem and their situation and by doing that demonstrate the relevance of what I'm doing. And if I can't do that then I should pack up my bag and go home anyhow. Yeah, you're not a fit. Okay, next slide. All right, back to the slides for a sec. We'll get back to your uh, argumentative stuff in a sec, Thomas. Um, <laughs> Did oh, we and, tell you who we are? Oh, yeah, right, let me, yeah, yeah, yeah. So We've to been Thomas doing this for a long time, yeah. So, so for Thomas, it's a benefit here. There's you can peel layers and layers of who we are out. Okay, keep going. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. The 36 hour function feature demo. Uh, yeah. We don't know what your problems are. So we're going to show you every capability in our package and hope that somehow we stumble across something that might make a difference for you. So, uh, you know, I hate these unfocused waste of time, you know? So anyway, yeah, let's, we can close that out. But anyway, I, I wasn't trying to hijack your uh, presentation today. No, uh, no, no, that's great. It actually fits right in with what I was talking about earlier and added a whole different dimension to it. So it ended up working out really well. So um, 
I'll give you a postscript on this. I used that uh, in the first like two minutes of a keynote at a big uh, reseller event for a major ERP vendor. And uh, at the end of it, end of my remarks, uh, we're going to take a break and, you know, everyone's running out, you know, back when we had conferences, they're all running out to get a cup of coffee. There's like 2000 people at this thing. It's not a small event. And this lady comes running down the center aisle, coming right up to the stage to see me. And I'll never forget her words because I thought, is she going to kill me or is she crazy or something? She's just charging down that aisle. And then she's she goes, I have to have a copy of that presentation. And I go, because? And she goes, because my husband resells this product. And that's the exact presentation he uses where he, uh, all he does is talk about himself and the company. And I need to take that presentation and show it to him and tell him to knock that shit off. That's her exact <laughs> words. <laughs> Let's uh, revisit the chat debate. There's a couple good points here. Greg is saying to Thomas, genuine credentials, like here's where we were successful and how we deliver real value. And here's who executed. Then Thomas... Bingo. Thomas responds, Greg, that's what we usually do. We have the consultants in the pitch, not only the sales guys. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think I don't think we're too far apart on this on this topic, yeah. really. Um, and Thomas also says plus one to the feature and function demo, though I do want to point out that <laughs> I, I do want to point out that 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 feature we talk about delivering value to customers. Those feature and function demos are excellent sleep aids. And if anyone on the call is having trouble getting to sleep at night, if you give them a copy that, you know, that recording with the demo deck, I mean, it's better than ocean sounds as far as getting to sleep. So, so uh, by the way, John, I, t I mentioned I have multiple versions of the undeck and I, I have one and it shows like um, it starts off with first, there's a picture of the, um, of the globe with a million little red dots on it. And it's like, we wish we had offices everywhere, you know, but uh, someday we'll, we'll, we'll have customers and offices in those places. Um, it was generated by the agilistic. Oh, I love that word. Um, <laughs> what? We're getting some I, good copy here. Um, I, I think one really interesting thing around this is to figure out how for, for vendors in particular to figure out how to talk about their technical innovations and how they deliver product and how that makes a difference for customers. Brian, I don't know if you remember, we had a couple of high level conversations with the ERP firm about this, where they were insistent that the multi tenancy didn't matter. This was years ago now, but part of their point was they're like, well, you know, we, it's our job to control the cost. We can do that any way we need to. We're not going to pass that along to the customer. And we were pushing back saying, well, you need to be efficient in your architecture so that you can provide value to customers. But I think it's just really important to be able to talk about that in the right way, not in terms of how great your technology is, but more about that's why we can deliver features to you and things that you care about in a really cost-effective way. That's the goal not talking about, oh my gosh, we got the shiniest architecture because I don't want to hear that. But I also don't want to hear, oh, you've got a legacy architecture that you're and you're and you're swallowing the cost of that because eventually that catches up with me, you know. So it's a really interesting discussion, I think. Yeah, I love it when you got a vendor who's um, didn't bother to read the RFI or the RFP, shows up to do a demo. Um, doesn't follow any of the demo instructions that were sent to him in advance, 
and they're in there. Maybe we want a transportation solution, i.e., like a car. And instead, they're talking about basically a giant overpriced armored tank with a 105 millimeter gun on top. You know, and I'm like, you know, why are you wasting our time here? You know, this is just you're just so unfocused on what you're trying to deliver. Anyway, um, I think we had our fun with the undeck. Uh, again, I can make a bigger version sometime, and I could put all like uh, 40 egregious slides in there because we missed the slides. I got them another deck that show like a picture of our glorious leader, you know, who learned, <laughs> who sat at the knee of Charlemagne to learn how to program, uh, you know, the original version of the product. Then there's... Um, you gotta have a picture of some. Usually, like, don't you usually have a picture of him hanging off the side of a cliff with like a crampon, as uh, well. Yeah. You know, like when he's when he's not scaling Mount Everest, he's delivering customer satisfaction. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I, I also like all the ones with people in sailboats. Uh, I don't know what what sailing has anything to do with slamming code, but uh, whatever. Uh, you, we get a lot of the you see a lot of those CEO pictures too. And I'm not picking on anybody. I'm saying I see a lot of them from several companies, and they're they're glorious leaders. Um, anyway, but not, and you know, frankly, cli- I I sit with the clients. I and I'm sitting there with them, and and I'm watching and reading the audience, and I could tell they're like either bored out of their mind or they're really frustrated because the vendor is not addressing them or their problems, and that's that wastes everybody's time. And I guarantee it's going to result in a no sale. Brian, weren't you telling me about a classic uh, factory of the future sales pitch where where the vendor brought out this super archaic technology to demo? Oh my God! Yeah, um, that was about two years ago, and we had sent them uh, very explicit material about what they're interested in, including like a digital fingerprint. They wanted to know from the moment something hit um, their receiving dock till it went out on the shipping dock. They want so, to know everybody touched so, it. So, just to be clear to the listeners, you were working with a customer to help them manage vendor selection for a factory of the future. So anyway, continue. So uh, they had three major ERP vendors. They had pieces of three major vendor solutions in there. And they thought, well, we, you know, we've heard all this great stuff about IOT and factory of the future and fourth industrial revolution from all three of these vendors. Let's put them on the, you know, the short list as well and have them come into demo. Well, we knew we were in for trouble because the first vendor showed up and, you know, the client project team only had eight or 10 people on it. And the first vendor showed up with right at 25 people from their firm to come in for a one day demo. So we knew got a problem here. Uh, Another one comes in and we ask them for, you know, show us all this advanced technology you're going to put to bear on the shop floor. And they pulled out a Telzon reader from like 1999. <laughs> I mean, this thing reads barcodes. That's what it does. That that was it. And we're going. And well, that's you know, this is our advanced deal. And I go, and the guy couldn't even get it to work. He could not make the connection to the ERP software in the demo. The next oh guy, goodness. the next guy's coming. Oh yeah, we got all that factory future stuff. We got everything. I mean to tell you, it's incredible what we got. You know, you're you know, it's fascinating. Was he pull out a Telson handheld reader, and that was it. That's all they had. 
was a barcode reader. All three vendors. That was the extent of their pre-configured um, advanced technology. Uh, my one of my clients was so livid. He stood up when he saw that one of those uh, barcode readers come out, and he goes. When I was over at, and he rattled a competitor's name, uh, another aerospace firm, in 10 or 12 years ago, he goes, I went out and bought some of those things, and I enabled barcode back then, and this is all you've been able to do in 10 years? And he goes, where's the RFID and everything else? He goes, since you have nothing, I have no reason to waste my time with you. He just turned around and walked out the room, and that was the end of him for the whole demo. So I kind of knew... I don't have to work too hard to convince the client we should drop them off the short list. That one was going to go away pretty quick. Yeah. What's the opposite of the challenger sale? The unable to challenge sale? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's the challenged sale. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, that's that's just brutal. Oh, Um, but here's the best of all of this stuff, John. As at the end of it all, then I guarantee you there's some account executive. I love that name. They don't do anything but just show up for the demos. And uh, and they come over and they'll talk to me because they know I'm the lead troublemaker and probably the most influential person in the deal because I can, I can wipe out a vendor like that if they're really bad. And they're coming over and going like, Brian, I think we did a fantastic job, don't you? I'm like, I don't know what meeting you were in, but no, you didn't. And um, and then, well, what could we do better? You know, I'm like, well, you could do the whole thing all over, but my class not going to give you that time. Anyway, I I just hate the AE who wants to try and salvage something. And I, I I get it if there's some legitimate things that maybe there were some open items that we had on a point sheet, but but when you just blow it from start to finish, there's nothing that can salvage that. Nothing I can do or anybody can do. Yeah, I we have a post that I did, Diginomica early post 2014. Selling is changing. Stop putting and start blogging, and <laughs> uh, and and uh, put your putter down and start blogging. Sounds like a great tagline for my motivational blog workshops. And so oh, I say, is it catchy? But it's good advice. And I caught up with you, um, and we actually did a video on profound change and and. We talk about the much feared informed buyer who is already savvy to the pros and cons before a single conversation takes place. And, uh, you know, um, you, you, you said in that, you said, uh, you talked about the context of the challenger sale and how you see buyers who are as, as well informed on pricing and functionality as, as, as the people in the room, which it kind of explains the situation you just described with the barcode readers where the buyer was ahead of the, the vendors. Um, Really oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I often find that the vendor's marketing department that's been, you know, pushing all kinds of great slideware and messaging to like the CEO to use at user conferences and other kinds of venues, they may be two years in front of where the product actually is and what the field organization has access to for demo perspectives. So, there, there can be some real disconnect disconnects there. I also want to say, in all fairness, clients also uh, aren't free of original sin either. So they can do some things that I'm sure, you know, any of the software vendors listening in on this, I don't want them to think that all I do is just make vendors' lives difficult. Uh, 
I have my hands full trying to get clients to uh, behave in an ethical, straight up and fair fashion as well. And uh, thankfully, most of them are really good, uh, believe it or not. And I'm not going to, I know I will never let a client just call in vendors just because they're just looking for some free ideas and then with no intention of using them. That's just not the ethical thing to do. If you're not going to bring them in in an open-minded way, then you shouldn't do it at all. Very good. So before we wrap up, uh, you you put a post on Diginomica. We don't have time to get into the entire uh, thrust of it. Oh, wait, Thomas wants to say one thing first. Um, Oftentimes, the client just wants to do the same old thing with with new software. True that. Yep. Um, So anyway, you put on a post. We're not going to get into all of it today because there's a lot there. But I recommend folks check it out. Time changes and the impact on ERP, accounting, and business practices. And if you want to get a little bit of a flavor for some of this, uh, check out the last week's uh, discussion Brian and I had about Factory of the Future. because Some of it comes down to Brian describing how ERP cost accounting uh, isn't really going to be able to keep up with the Factory of the Future in terms of you have to rethink time increments, the precision that you want in your costs, uh, essentially, basically more real-time cost accounting. <clears throat> Brian, you can go into a little more detail on your point there, but uh, but it was interesting because we also had a reader push back on that. So I want to give you a chance to respond to a couple of the, the, the pushbacks you got on that as well. Well, I think the bottom line is I just argued that uh, we've had uh, decades or centuries of some very fixed time things like what's a pay period it's often a a negotiated deal between employers and employees because payroll is has traditionally been a very difficult and expensive thing to process but employees if you don't pay them every week or two weeks they're going to want to seek greener pastures elsewhere where they can get paid in timely fashion so we know that and you pointed out that in the gig economy some people are getting paid every day well not just gig but uh It's today's economy, paychecks and ADP, they both have these, um, I think Ceridian Day Force, it's called uh, Pay Wallet, Uh, but they they have these utilities now. People can get paid every day. So the concept of a pay period, a fixed, rigid, unchanging pay period, it's gone. And we're moving in accounting to a thing called the continuous close as opposed to fixed accounting periods necessarily. All these are artifacts of the past. And we we can move them to the past because the the speed with which information can be collected, transmitted, and processed now has gotten really fast and really cheap. And that means we need to rethink processes and technology. Where we got into this Grange War on my article afterwards um, is that somebody was – someone took what I wrote and was extending it to mean that – Every little like sensor blip, you know, like a status record coming off of an IoT sensor that just says situation normal. There's nothing wrong with this this device that we're going to send bazillions of these things all the way into the general ledger. And, you know, there's limitations. You know, I'll tell you guys, the Diginomic folks, they know I write long form pieces and I think I write longer ones than even they like. Uh, but I can't I can't. I can't submit a book for a post, so I got to kind of bound these pieces. I, I didn't get into this p- argument about where do you put all this data. Well, bottom line is some of the data 
stays in like a historian or history kind of database, maybe at the plant level or in control near controller devices, and it gets acted on only when anomalies get detected, but it, it never goes to the general ledger. There's some stuff that gets acted on with that precise data uh, from time to time, and it gets sent to a cost accounting system, and you can still have a pretty modest amount of information flying in there. And there are a few events that will go all the way to the general ledger, you know, but we we have to think in terms of like either sub-ledgers to use an accounting term or a, a data warehouse or repository for some of the other stuff. Regardless, a lot of this depends on the kind of business you're in, how many bazillion steps are in your production process and so forth. You got to come up with an architecture that works for your firm. But the bottom line, though, is it's the measurement windows are shrinking, and that creates an opportunity for you guys to come up with more precise ways to figure out, are we making money on individual batches, products, product lines, uh, to customers, whatever. That's what you really get out of the benefit from it. So I just want people to look at the benefit option. This really wasn't, my article was not a treatise on where do you park the data. uh, I want to be clear about that. So, So Brian, just one real quick thing on that. In the case of a project that's dealing with that, are you advocating that, that, that reconfiguring their existing ERP solution will help them to solve a lot of that? Or are you essentially arguing that they may need to modernize their ERP backend with a newer version of the product? Like, or, or does it depend on the situation? Well, you, at a minimum, you need to rethink what I'd call all your master data. That's one. Right. You need to rethink uh, what kind of information and uh, dashboards, management reports, analytics, and everything else you're going to want out of something like uh, out of uh, cost accounting? You probably have to rethink how you do inventory accounting. Uh, you may want to think about are we do, if we're going to create P&Ls by customer, by product, by whatever, how are we going to stitch together the revenue from like the sales side of the house with this detailed cost data? Can we get these all synchronized at the right level of detail at the right time? And how do we do all this kind of stuff in real time? I think architecturally, there's a bunch of plumbing questions you got to answer. You can't just do a packageectomy and pop out an older version of ERP and not change anything functionally about it and expect that all this is going to, you know, auto-magically, to your, use your favorite word, John, I don't know if that was one of your mm. mystery words for today, uh, but if it's going to... <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Um but it's not going to all. You're not going to get the benefit you want unless you deal with unless you think through all these other things. And a classic one you got to worry about is even something as dull as intercompany accounting could change as well, depending on how you're going to move this stuff around. Yeah, and 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 just for our listeners, Brian has now successfully rebutted the comments on on his piece. Uh, but but you may want to check it out on Digonomica. the The name of the piece is. Uh, Time changes in the impact on ERP accounting and business practices, or you could do a search Brian Summer Digonomic, it'll pop right up. Um, and the the thing I wanted to just frame here for the listeners is we don't have a chance for a deep discussion today, but where I see this being important for everyone to talk about is that this this sort of frames a debate between for for those who are embracing some type of transformation, which which obviously needs to be process, culture, and tech in their industry. Um, there are different competing models on how to do that. And one is ring fencing your ERP system because it's a legacy architecture anyway, and focusing on customer facing uh, applications and pursuits. 
but which is obviously heavily advocated by CRM vendors and such. Um, but then, of course, there's a different argument that a lot of ERP vendors make, which is you need to modernize your ERP and think about what modern ERP looks like. And there's no one right answer to all these questions because it's very customer specific. And I would never right. advocate the customers need to upgrade their software by definition to make transformations happen. I think that's a very, very that's why people like Brian are in business, because they need to advise customers on exactly what their situation is. But it's a very, very important debate, I think, for, for people to have. And the only thing I would add to that is that I do believe quite strongly that the future of ERP is is mostly cloud and definitely industry. So in other words, what, what Brian's talking about here, it's not going to work well if the ERP is not designed for your industry. And if you have a proprietary industry system that's holding a bunch of data that the ERP system needs in order to make these kinds of the incremental changes, whether it's real time or near real time or what have you, to me, that's the future is to figure out how these data sets can be better aligned and integrated. And, and to Brian's point, some of that's a master data problem as well. To me, that's the conversations customers have to have. It's not as simple as, oh, we want to change our, our, our process in this way. You have to think about the, all these implications as well. So anyway. Yeah. I, to that, I would add the way your company makes, if you're in a products-based company, the way you make your product probably isn't going to fundamentally change in a major way. It's the, if I got better information and more information, could I make better decisions around like which customers are actually even, do, do we really even know how much profitability a specific plant or operation is responsible for? And do we really understand what the fully fully loaded costs are at each individual facility? And should we make macro level adjustments to move our production around to other different facilities to get better uh, to get better financial results as a company? You can't do that at a lot of companies because you don't even have the basic data and you don't have reliable kind of cost information to make those decisions. As amazing as that statement sounds, in this day and age. That is often quite true. So yeah. I, I would agree. We've got we've got all kinds of opportunity to do all kinds of digitalization stuff. But if your firm is only borderline functional right now compared to dysfunctional, you're not even at process excellent yet. Let alone to be thinking about trans, you know, having some kind of industry transformation impact. You got a kind of, you got some crawl before you walk kind of problems you got to deal with and. Uh, I'm not sure f fixing or replacing the ERP is always the first step you go to. You need a plan first, and you really need to think this out. It's like building a house that you got plumbing, electric, and everything else to worry about. Businesses are just as complex, and you got got to sort out and figure out where what makes sense to start with in this firm. Yeah, and to your point around the end customer, they have to own their transformation, and they have to figure out what those proper next steps are because too often. I find customers buying into a particular vendor's version of transformation, which is not necessarily the one they should be adopting. Um, and a uh, LinkedIn user says, we'd love to create a better environment, a landscape for the big corporates. We could really do with an IT reset where help desks are reevaluated using basic chatbots, use the data scientists to analyze the results of something relevant. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the dream of, in my mind, if you talk about the proper use of AI and automation technology is make, make, make the mundane stuff, as automated as possible and then 
provide real human intervention and, and services where it's needed the most. But to Brian's point, I think we're a long way off from a lot of those things. For example, how many enterprises are really deploying their best people to serve their most profitable customers? Not very many because they don't know who their most profitable customers are. And, you know, so, so that's, that's, I think, part of the issue here. But anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I know you didn't want to debate the whole thing. So I, yep. I think we're starting to debate the whole no, thing. I think, here, we're, so. I, think, I think we're just about ready. Unless you have a final word, I think we'll sign off for the day. No, I think we're pretty much there. Thanks for that masterful slide demonstration, Brian, and appreciate uh, the audience bearing with us while we did that on the fly. I think it we give ourselves a B minus there for presentation on that, but at least you did see the slides, so that's something. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so just just so you guys know, I am going to be uh, continuing to do this Fridays, just about four p.m. Eastern time every Friday. There might the start time might vary slightly certain weeks, and uh, Brian will be coming back regular. Uh, my next few guests are not Brian, so it's possible we will do a special uh, Brian Summer day on another day if we think of something that we really want to do. So if that happens, you'll just have to keep your eyes out because uh, your LinkedIn live notification will be your, your best asset. But I'll try to put that out a few days in advance so you can see it on the feed. Anyhow, thanks to all of you in the feed for commenting. And thanks. Uh, oh, we got the good feedback on your slides, Brian. So um, definitely a lot of interest in, in, in a further deck. And, um, yeah, I, I, think- I, I just wish I'd have had, I wish I'd have known I, I was going to do that. Cause I would have made a collage one that would have been where I got the best parts of a whole bunch of, or the worst parts of a bunch of them. However you want to look at it, it would have been a, um, it would have been a laugh, right? But anyway, you guys got the drift. You quit talking about yourselves and talk talk to the client. All right. Thanks, thanks, Thomas. If you missed the beginning of that, you may want to catch the replay because I got into more hyper-personalization and content stuff, but uh, a lot of it you know by heart anyhow. Um, so, and, and, and those of you who haven't seen Thomas's blog this week, check it out on the customer uh, 360 stuff. I think I might actually be quoted in it, um, but but that's not why you should read it because uh, my quote's at the end. You should read the whole thing. So anyhow, thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time. See you, everybody. Thanks.